Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. The great French writer Alexis de Tocqueville once said, there is scarcely any public matter that does not arise from tax or end in one. It certainly feels a bit like that in the UK at the moment. It was the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's radical, unfunded, tax-slashing so-called mini-budget on the 23rd of September that did for him and then a few weeks later for his Prime Minister. It was the next Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt's rather less gung-ho tax-raising budget of a couple of months later that had Tory backbenchers grumbling about what was left of conservatism. But perhaps more importantly, it was Hunt's budget that not only pushed UK taxes to an unprecedentedly high peacetime level, but may have left them there permanently. Don't take my word for this. Paul Johnson, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, wrote, having hovered around the 33% mark for decades, tax as a percentage of national income is on a path to rise above 37% by the late 2020s, its highest ever. So here is my prediction. Higher taxes are the new normal. The tax take will not return to 33% in my lifetime, and for reference, I can reasonably expect to be around until the 2050s. The subject of tax raises passions. It is, after all, about my money and our mutual responsibility. Two topics that are close to the heart. But it's not generally considered to be a topic to enjoy. The late great American novelist David Foster Wallace, who worked in a regional IRS centre in Illinois, once remarked, The whole subject of tax policy and administration is dull. Massively and spectacularly dull. I'm afraid to say that David Foster Wallace is wrong. Massively and spectacularly wrong. Tax is not only important, but fascinating and, wait for it, fun. And I can say that having just read the brilliant, informative and highly entertaining book Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, Tax Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages. The book is by Joel Slemrod, Professor of Business Economics and Public Policy at the University of Michigan, and Michael Keane, former Deputy Director of Fiscal Affairs at the International Monetary Fund, and now Ushioda Fellow at the Tokyo College in University of Tokyo. And Michael joins me this week to talk about how we should think about tax. Michael, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks for having me. Now, I began my introduction by promising listeners that the topic of tax was not only interesting, but fun. So I'd like to start by proving this with a few of the stories you tell in your book. Tell me, why did Peter the Great tax beards? Well... Peter the Great Taxbeards because he was on a big Europeanization kick at the time. He thought Russia was very backward, needed to turn his eyes to the West, 
And the kind of symbol of the backward nature of Rashtim was the boyars and their flamboyant beards. I guess he didn't quite have the courage to tell them to shave the beards off, so he decided to put a tax on the beards to discourage them from having beards. Now, you could keep a beard, but you had to display a rather attractive little token proving you had paid your tax. So why did we tax wigs in 18th century England then? Not the same reason, presumably? No, although heads are actually quite a good thing to tax in the old days because you could kind of see people's heads. Wigs seemed quite a good thing to tax because they were primarily used by the better off. So they had some kind of progressivity property. And you could tell if somebody was wearing a wig and therefore had a kind of incipient tax liability. And it was such a good idea taxing wigs that the British even decided to tax the powder that you had to put on your wigs as well <laughs> as a separate tax. So visibility is important then, and few things more visible than windows. We like to tax windows, didn't we? Tell us about that one. Well, windows, again, it sounds very quaint, was actually quite a smart idea. So the precursor to the window tax was actually a tax on what were then called hearths, basically fireplaces. People hated this because, amongst other things, the tax inspector had to come into your house to figure out how many fireplaces you had. So come the glorious revolution, new regime was promised to get rid of the hearth tax. What are they going to do? Well, how can you tell how well off somebody is from their property, but without going inside? Well, the smart idea was, well, you can stand on the street and count how many windows they have. And the more windows they have, the better off they tend to be. And that's why so many houses of that age have bricked up windows still today, don't they? Exactly. Tax is also often connected to the English language or clarifying or perhaps twisting the English language. I love the idea that in the 18th century, hat makers stopped calling their creation hats because of tax. And at one point you ask, what exactly is a window? Tell us the link between, between language and tax. Ah, uh, yes. Well, it's a long and shameful history in a way. But yes, when you have a tax on windows, you actually have to define what actually is a window. A hole in the wall, is that going to count as a window? So part of the issue is that people get into these slightly ludicrous issues of how to precisely define things. So there was, I think, in the United States, there was an issue of how you had to define, I think a tomato is botanically a fruit, I think, but for tax purposes in the US, it's a vegetable. But of course, it's also a great trick of lobbyists is to, is to try and attach a label to a tax they particularly dislike. The classic example is in the US, where the anti-capital gains tax and estate tax people came to call the estate tax a tax on death. Um, mm. They kind of give it these uh, this connotations, which in many ways is actually a good tax on death because they're all going to die. So it's a non-distorting tax to tax people. <laughs> <laughs> the one we're familiar with, I guess, over here is the famous Jaffa cake. Remind us of that. Well, the Jaffa, the Jaffa cake story. So the question was, for VAT purposes, is a Jaffa cake is it a cake or a biscuit? Because they are taxed at different rates under the VAT. So, of course, this becomes a, a classic legal adventure of uh, highly paid barristers and solicitors deciding whether, in fact, you would call a Jaffa cake a cake or a biscuit. So you get into things like, well, you know, do you eat a Jaffa cake with a fork or do you dunk it into your tea? All these kind of issues. And eventually, I think, I think it was decided that Jaffa cake is, in fact, as the name might suggest, a cake. Now, these are all slightly whimsical and entertaining stories. The first one you tell in the book was terrific, and it's about how the American Revolution, the popular story of it, was that it was originated by a tax hike. 
And that's fundamentally wrong, isn't it? It's uh, completely diametrically opposed to the truth, yes. So it's a long and actually quite interesting story. So the British had a tax on tea that was paid when the tea arrived in the colonies. The British wanted to keep that tax, not because there was much money in it, but to prove they had the right to tax the colonists. However, East India Company is in big trouble, need to sell more tea in the colonies. How do you do that? Well, some bright spark in London noticed that before the tea went to the colonies, it came through London. And when it was in London, it paid a tax. So the smart bureaucrat thought, well, why don't we reduce this tax in London? That's going to reduce the price of tea in the colonies. We're going to sell more tea. Everybody's going to be happy. But of course, it all goes wrong. And it goes wrong because the reduction in the price of tea basically undercut the smugglers in Boston mm. or in the colonies. And the smugglers were people like John Hancock, respectable, disreputable businessmen. And they didn't like being undercut by British tea. And so into the harbor goes the British tea. And then we inherit the notion of the Tea Party and so on, which, uh, as you say, ironically, was actually opposition to a tax cut. Enjoyable stories, all of them. They don't disguise the fact that, of course, throughout history, tax has been ineradicably tied in with violence in lots of different ways. Tell us briefly about the various ways in which tax and violence or tax and coercion have been twins. Well, you're right. It goes back as far as one can imagine. So, for example, I think in 88 BCE, the um, Mithridates the Great ordered all the people in Asia Minor to massacre all the Roman tax collectors. And it was a kind of a rebellion against the exertion of sovereignty by the Romans. And it carries on throughout history. There are, there are entire books that list all the tax revolts. But I guess the epitome of all this is the French Revolution, which came out of a tax system in France that was unutterably complicated because France was such a complicated country at that time. There was really no national tax system. There were all kinds of taxes on internal trade, massive smuggling as a result. And of course, the heart of it was a kind of a huge unfairness that was widely perceived in the way money was raised. Essentially, the aristocratic elite had managed to get tax exemptions on the grounds that they were providing military service to the government, as in feudal days, which of course was complete nonsense. It's not that the rich weren't paying any taxes, but the whole system was clearly just completely inequitable. Plus, it wasn't bringing in enough money to pay the government's debts. Everybody knew the tax system had to change, and it was pretty clear how it had to be changed. But somehow the political equilibrium was such that it just didn't, didn't happen before, before the whole thing fell apart. So there are lots of entertaining and quirky and fascinating and fun stories in the book, but the book is definitely more than just a series of stories. It's split out, broadly speaking, into three main areas, about the question of fairness when it comes to raising revenue, about the question of impact, meaning how to avoid causing too much damage to the wider economy when you're raising taxes, and about the question of enforcement, how to actually raise taxes. And I want us briefly to look at each of those Fairness first. The first thing we think of regarding fairness is the level at which taxes are set. What's the average or what's the, been the range of tax throughout history? Well, that's a tough question. I think it's certainly the case that we shouldn't think of the past as a golden age of low taxation. We do see very high taxes throughout history. For the Crusades, some of the charges were 10, 25 percent of movable property. So they're really quite high tax rates. Other examples are even higher in, in Russia, I think, in the 18th century. About two-thirds of the grain harvest was going in tax. In Japan, 30% of rice was going in tax. 
So it's very hard to assess, partly because taxes were more complicated then, because you might be paying tax to your local lord, you'd be paying tax to the church as well. You may well have some kind of um, traditional payments you make to people. Taxes were more nebulous in some sense than they are now. There's also the dimension critical when it comes to fairness of who taxes fall on. And you mentioned a few chilling examples in the book. We're probably familiar with Jews in medieval Europe. A horrendous story about the breasts of lower caste women in India. Tell us about how where taxes fall becomes an issue of fairness. Well, I think tax is often used differentially against people who in some sense are outsiders, uh, who are outsiders of a wider community. And the breast tax, for example, that was uh, a tax, not entirely clear it's true, but it's been featured in textbooks in India and so on. But the story goes that at one point, I think the early 19th century, the local prince decided to essentially impose a tax on women who chose to cover their breast in public. And there was a famous refuser called Mengeli, who, when the tax collector came to call, cut off her breast and presented it to the tax collector and subsequently died. Certainly religion has been a basis for differential taxation of various kinds. In Britain, I think till the late 18th century, Catholics paid rather more. Muslim has a special tax on non-believers. Although in the Muslim case, for example, if you were paying the non-believers tax, you didn't have to pay the believers tax. So it was kind of it was an alternative tax. Yes. And one nice story in that context is that the tax in principle was a payment for protection. You were paying to be protected by the government. And so there is a story of Saladin the Great, when he was forced to retreat by the Crusaders at some point, actually gave the money back because he couldn't protect the Christians and Jews, which would be quite something. They're examples of unfair taxes, which we might call more or less directly prejudicial. You tax Catholics in the 18th century because you see them as a threat and you want to socially ostracise them. But then there's also the question of where taxes fall in terms of what's known as how progressive they are and the extent to which rich people not only pay more but pay progressively more than poor people. And that's an absolutely central dimension to the fairness of tax, isn't it? So that's when we write the book. I think that's partly where we struggle between being interesting and being a little bit nerdy, because this whole question of who really ends up paying taxes is one that I think really gets very little attention in the public debate and really needs to get more. So it's not necessarily the case that if you tax wealthy people, maybe they can pass the tax on to other people who are not so wealthy. Maybe they will pay people that they employ less or or invest less, and then wages will go down. So I think this whole question of incidence is a difficult one. And I think in many ways, economists don't always have great answers. I think also it goes back to the point you're making earlier on about language, because often language is used to suggest who will bear the burden of the tax in a way that may not be true. The classic example for me is the idea of a tax on financial transactions. So a very small tax every time any transaction takes place. And people who like it call that the Robin Hood tax because the idea is the rich will pay it or it'll come out of bankers' excess salaries or something. Where in economic terms, there's no real reason to think that would be the case. It may well come in terms of higher cost of making transactions or lower returns and so on. So it is a big issue. I don't think economists are always terribly good at explaining it. 
Yes. I do want to dwell on this one, actually, because this was completely new to me. You slipped the word incidents in there, which was one that, as a non-economist, I was unfamiliar with. And just to be clear, this is the question of who ultimately pays yeah. for the tax. In my naivety beforehand, I had thought, oh, well, the person who is taxed. But of course, as you rightly say, well, they may then pass on the cost to somebody else. And then the question of who ends up paying for it, in the truest sense of the word, is a bit complex. And you can't, and you make the point, you can't legislate tax incidents. In other words, legislate that I tax you and you have to pay the tax. You can't pass on that tax anyway, because that amounts to price control. And I was really struck by the fact that actually, in some instances, we just don't know, ultimately, who is bearing the cost of these taxes. That seems to me quite remarkable. I think it is. And I think that's true. I think even if you talk about something like the standard rate of VAT, so if you increase the standard rate of VAT, we kind of all assume that, well, prices will go up by the same amount and consumers will bear the case. It's not obviously true that that's the case. And it's actually empirically quite hard to tell if that's the case. For example, if you have a reduced rate on some item, one consequence of the reduced rate may be that the people selling it can actually charge a little bit of a higher price than they otherwise would. And there, I think there is some evidence that reduced rates to VAT, for example, are not fully passed on to consumers. So it's true that we don't know that much in many ways. Another example is the corporate tax. People always think that corporate tax is somehow borne by businesses. Well, that doesn't make sense because businesses are people. Well, okay, maybe it's borne by shareholders. But, well, maybe it isn't. Maybe what happens is that the corporate tax leads companies to invest less. As a result, productivity goes down. As a result, wages go down. So, mm, Which is a very live issue in UK economic debates at the moment, isn't it? Right, right. The conclusion you draw in this particular area is that it's the people with the fewest alternatives that tend to get stuck with most of the tax burden. So you tax me, but if I can do something else, I'll do something else. Exactly. And, but if I can't, I end up having to pay the tax. That's the right way to look at it, is it? Exactly. I mean, a classic example is wealthy people moving abroad. The fear that, well, if we tax the wealthy very heavily, they'll move abroad. So to the extent that that is true, they're not going to end up paying the tax. So it's going to fall on somebody else. Yes. So that leads us very neatly to the second area, which is impact. And exactly as you were saying there, when you tax people, they change their behaviour. Now, tax has been used to incentivise socially admirable behaviour. Can you give me some examples of how that's happened? Well, many governments have thought that childbirth is a good thing. So there have been various incentives to encourage people to have children, which actually seem to have had some effect. There was a baby bonus, I think, in Australia for babies born after a certain date. And you can certainly see people holding off birth until that happens. Um, <laughs> and in fact, many fascist regimes in the past have had very generous allowances for families because having lots of children meant having lots of soldiers at some point. One of the stories that we quite like is the story of the bachelor tax in Argentina. So again, a similar idea was to discourage bachelors by levying an extra tax on them. And this, at some point, a kindly tax policy maker decided that, well, what do we do about people who propose marriage to somebody but get turned down? It seems a bit unfair that they should pay the bachelor tax if they've done everything they can not to be a bachelor. So they introduced an exemption. If you could prove that a woman had turned down your proposal of marriage. So that led to the emergence of a class of professional refusers, <laughs> ladies who, for a small fee, 
would sign the appropriate form and swear to God that you had proposed marriage to them, but they had turned you down. I guess there are some examples, as you point out, of trying to incentivise good behaviour through taxation. There are plenty more about trying to disincentivise bad behaviour, tobacco, drink, opium, sugary drinks, sex shows even. I mean, there are far too many for us to go in, but give us an example of how we've tried to use tax to stop us from being sinful. Well, as you say, there are many. It's hard to know where to begin. I think the tobacco example I always like because that really originated, as many people will know, with with King James in the early part of the 17th century, who took a real dislike to tobacco and wrote this pamphlet against tobacco, which has the arguments that economists have come up with in the subsequent 400 years or whatever it was. The issue with tobacco now is, is to some extent why the taxes on tobacco are quite so high. It's actually not that easy to justify them in terms of the damage tobacco does to others. Whereas, for example, alcohol, you could argue that alcohol really does a lot of damage and perhaps is undertaxed. So there are level, there are issues about what levels you should set these taxes at. In some sense, what you think the nature of the sin actually is. Once again, with this question of impact, there are interesting, quirky, sort of indicative stories, but a very serious point underneath it, which is how taxes distort human behaviour. And that can become a very technical issue because, as I understand it, if you tax people and they then start behaving in a different way, they then, as you've said, may end up paying less tax. And so you can get into the paradoxical situation whereby you raise less revenue by increasing taxes. Now, I'm aware that this is an incredibly sensitive issue because politically there are a lot of people on the economic right who say, well, that's what we need to do. We need to lower taxes in order to raise revenue. And this leads into the Laffer curve, doesn't it? Can you explain that for us? Well, the Laffer curve itself is simply the idea that if the tax rate is zero, you get no revenue. If the tax rate is 100%, you're going to get no revenue. So somewhere between zero and 100% must be a level of the rate at which revenue is the highest it can possibly be. Therefore, above that level, higher tax rates reduce revenue. So that's the idea that famously Arthur Laffer could write on the back of a napkin and uh, Mm -hmm. explain to people at at a nice dinner. But the trouble is, I mean, it'd be great if that were true in many contexts, but it's really quite hard to find clear examples where that's actually happened. I think we had to go back to... The 18th century, I think, Henry Pelham's bold reduction in the tax on tea in the the 1740s, where the tax was reduced. Revenue, it seems, did go up a huge amount, partly because smuggling was undercut. But it's really hard to find modern examples of any great significance in which taxes have been pushed so high that you actually get more money by reducing the rate. But as you say, it's a very nice thing for politicians to say that, wow, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about revenue. It's going to go up even though we're cutting rates. So, Well, it's a beautiful political win-win, isn't yeah. it? I'm going to tax you less and collectively we're going to have more through it. It does seem a bit too good to be true. It allows us to go to a parallel question, which is what is the link then between tax levels and economic growth? Because, again, that's a very hot topic in our current climate. Yes, it's a hot topic. And it's one where I think views differ, but... My own take is that really it's very hard to get a strong relationship between the overall level of taxation and the rate of economic growth. You know, the classic example is if you compare the United States, which traditionally is a low-tax country, although Americans often don't think that, 
compared to Sweden, traditionally a high-tax country. Both have had pretty good growth performances over that period. So I don't think there's any simple correlation between the two. And I think what many economists would say is that the structure of the tax system may matter quite a lot. So, for example, many people would say that a badly designed corporate tax can be quite harmful for growth because it distorts investment decisions and all these kind of things that are important for long-term growth. Whereas at the opposite extreme, something like a value-added tax might be not good for growth, but relatively not so bad for growth because it doesn't really distort business decisions in quite the same way. So it's a controversial topic, but I think it's hard to assert a very strong relationship. I should make one qualification to what I just said, which is for low-income countries. I think there's a lot of evidence that when you're talking about developing countries, which unless you get the tax ratio up to about 15% of GDP, then you really do struggle. There is some evidence that growth kind of takes off around about 15%, I mean, you know, plus or minus a few points. But once you're beyond that level, I think there's no very strong correlation. So I want us to look now at this third area, that of collecting or enforcing tax. This is comparatively easy today, but it has proved literally coercive and violent throughout history. And you have some examples in the book of the way people who have evaded tax have been punished. And sometimes it's utterly brutal and sometimes it's just rather eccentric. I guess the most eccentric example is in Mughal India where there was apparently a governor who decided to punish tax offenders by making them wear leather trousers and putting cats down in their trousers. Which I think, for creativity, I mean, why not? <laughs> we should reintroduce that. I mean, that would be so popular, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's a, a moment of, if I can put it this way, serious biblical interpretation in the book. You say at one point, one of the ways in which Jesus showed the universality of his love and forgiveness was precisely his embrace of tax collectors. And it's worth underlining that, isn't it? Because we might not like HMRC today, but we don't hate them in the same way as tax collectors were literally hated and loathed and sometimes killed in previous cultures. That job could be very dangerous, couldn't it? Oh, it could. The massacre of the Roman tax collectors in Asia Minor was 88 years BC. So it was current attitudes at the time. But certainly attitudes to tax collectors have changed. And I think one of the things we wanted to bring out in the book, and I'm not sure we succeeded, but around the world, there are lots of people working to make their country's tax systems better. There are people on not very good salaries doing the best for their countries, often in, in just in unpleasant circumstances, sometimes in dangerous circumstances. So I think there are parts of the world where being a tax collector is really not fun at all, requires a lot of mm. dedication. Well, let's look at the future as we come in to close our conversation. Is it the case that our increasing ability to use quite sophisticated technology to raise tax is going to make tax tax evasion much harder? I think the jury is still out a little bit because we do know that people who want to do seriously criminal evasion can be very good using modern technology. We know that there are some VAT frauds, for example, which have relied on really quite sophisticated technology to get away with very large amounts of money. But I think people like me would at least hope that the dominant trend will be for more information to be automatically available to tax authorities so that um, the tax authorities know 
how much you've earned on any investments. They know, they know not only your salary, but where you've put the money, all these kind of things. So I think we can hope that technology will certainly make complying with tax easier. But I, I think it's still something of, a, of an open question. There is a bit of an arms race still going on, I think. And globalization is another very important frontier for this, isn't it? Because presumably an ever more interconnected world with huge flows of information across borders is also going to make the evasion of taxes easier, at least for those who are able to shift their capital across borders. You mentioned slightly tongue-in-cheek towards the end of the book that we're increasingly sharing information between tax jurisdictions and that one day we might have a world tax organisation in the same way as we have a world trade organisation. Do you think that's ever going to happen? Probably not in my lifetime, but I don't have that much lifetime left, so that may not say too much. <laughs> Since the book was written, there have been quite important developments in terms of developing corporations on corporate taxation across countries. So there is now rather good prospect that there will be, in effect, a global minimum corporate tax rate, an effective rate of 15%, which doesn't sound very high. But if that were to happen as a kind of pretty much a global initiative, that would be quite something. It's quite interesting because we tend to think multilateralism is not doing very well these days. But strangely, in the tax area, there has been some real progress. That is encouraging. Another one of the trends you pick up right at the end is um, the rise in stealth taxes, effectively increasing unwillingness to admit that taxes are, are taxes. And I couldn't help but recall an episode of The Simpsons there in which Lisa is made president and she is faced with the choice of raising revenue and whether she calls it a temporary refund adjustment or a colossal salary grab. (laughs) And and not surprisingly, she goes with the first. It's a brilliant Simpsons observation, but it goes to a very important point, isn't it, that we we recognise that we need taxes for public services and defence and so on and so forth, but actually we don't want to call them taxes. How are we going to square that circle? Well, I don't know, but that's a great story. I didn't know that one. That'll go straight in the second edition. It's a tough one. I mean, I think one thing that comes up that public finance people like me don't quite like is what's called earmarking, which is the idea that you have a tax, but you say, well, I'm raising this tax, but I'm going to spend it on something you like. So I'm going to have a tax on carbon, but I'm going to spend it on environmental protection measures or whatever, or even some countries, again, developing countries may introduce a VAT increase and say, well, we're increasing the VAT, but that's going to go on health spending. So this notion of earmarking, which... Which is hypothecation as well, isn't it? Is that right? Exactly. Same thing as hypothecation, which I think many public finance people don't like because it's either kind of constraining or it's just a lie. Either it really works in constraining how you spend the government's money or it's misleading taxpayers because it's not constraining you. So people like me tend not to like it in principle, but I think that's another thing that governments may find themselves trying to do more and more because there there is some evidence that that can help people accept taxes if they're persuaded that it goes to good causes. I hope in our conversation we have shown listeners that tax is not only important, which they'll know, but as I said, interesting and fun, but also has a really deep, serious core to it in terms of it relating to how we relate to one another. And by way of conclusion, there was one sentence in the closing pages of the book that really leapt out at me, in which you simply say, a strong tax system is built on mutual and reinforcing trust. 
deep down, taxes, how much we raise and how we raise them and what we use them for and so on and so forth is predicated on the extent to which we trust one another, how we relate to one another. And you can't help notice that currently, at least in North Atlantic world, arguably Europe as well, trust is at a bit of a premium. Does that give you cause for concern for the future of tax? I think I'm less concerned, say, in the UK and maybe some other some other countries, some other European countries, maybe the US too, because I think the UK has built up a culture of trust. And I think the trust is something you build up not in five or 10 years, but kind of over centuries. So I think the trust in the mm. UK has been built up over the late 1690s or something like that. I think it's more of an immediate problem, again, in many of these low-income countries where they're stuck with very low tax ratios. It's very hard to get out of that, basically because people don't trust the government and also the government doesn't trust the people. And then that leaves government to take very aggressive, punitive ways of collecting taxes. I think where you can see dangers to the trust that's been built up probably is in relation to inequality. I think there is a real sense that the tax system has not coped with rising inequality. I think there is a sense that there's an inherent unfairness in the tax system, which is certainly not correcting for other changes that may be leading to more inequality. In the less advanced economies, I think the issue is, well, what what happens with the money? I I don't think we have quite so much that issue. I think it's more to do with the fairness of the system. The book is called Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, Tax, Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages. Michael, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thanks very much, It's a great, great fun. Thank you. You've been listening to the final episode in the fifth series of Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. I want to express my thanks to all my guests this series. Louise Perry, Marianne Wolfe, Richard English, Simon Conway-Morris... Stefan Durkin, Anne Hartle, Mark Vickers and Michael Keane. I want to give particular thanks to my brilliant producer Phil Bodger and to Nina Humphreys for her wonderful theme music and to all the team at Theos, Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. And I want to thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series and I hope it's encouraged you to go out and buy and read some of the books we've been talking about. We'll be back for another series next year. So until then, take care.